this morning we continue our look at the book of Haggai this Advent season. And as we saw previously, the people of God, after their exile, have returned to the ruins of their city. And they were encouraged by God to rebuild the temple in chapter 1. And in fact, they were ignoring the temple and it was affecting every aspect of their life, including the lack of harvest that they had. Last week we saw that one month into the rebuild, they looked at the new temple and said, this is not as good as the old one. But God made a promise to them. He said that he would be with them. And he promised that the latter glory of the temple would be greater than the former glory. So now we come to the third prophecy in the book. Three months from the first, two months from the second. To be exact, it's December 18th, 520 B.C., roughly 2,500 years ago. Young worshipers that are with us this morning, God promises to do something for his people in this passage. What is it? What does God promise to do? Hear now the word of the Lord from Haggai 2, verses 10 through 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that by your spirit, you would open our hearts and minds to hear it. Would you help us to see our deep need for blessing? And would you give us also hope in the midst of suffering? In the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. If there's one thing we love in movies, it's a really good training montage. Think about Rocky running through the streets of Philadelphia, alternated by doing one-handed push-ups and things like that to get ready for his big boxing match. Or maybe if Mulan is, is more your speed, you know, think about I'll make a man out of you and all the training they put in. And what ends up happening is that years and months of hard work turn into minutes. And all of a sudden, they're done, they've put in the hard work, and they're ready for whatever comes next. They've achieved all these amazing results just in the span of one song. It's pretty amazing. But you know, we all want this sort of thing, and yet at the same time, we know that doesn't really exist in real life. Months and years of hard work take months and years, not minutes. And... Sometimes we work hard and we don't get anywhere. Sometimes hard work doesn't pay off. We all know this feeling, to work with something and get little to no results. It could be that, you know, we're doing work and we put all the efforts in and we don't actually get anything out of it with our relationships, with our family, at our work, things like that. Well, 
Maybe you think of COVID. We've been putting all this hard work in, and yet we're still here so many months later. But also, I think we all feel this as Christians often. Lord, I've been following you. I've been putting in the work. And things actually feel harder than before. Things actually feel worse. And believe it or not, this is what the people of God feel in Haggai this morning. You see, this is where they found themselves on December 18th, 520 B.C. Because if you were going to put a building montage in the book of Haggai, it would be right before this verse. Because they would have been building for three months. And you would expect all these amazing things at the end. And yet, as we'll see, they find themselves no better off than they began. Arguably, they're worse off than when they began. And so to them and to us this morning, God's word is clear. We need God's blessing. And we see the people's need for blessing then and our need for blessing now in two specific ways in this passage. First, we need purification for our hearts. And second, we need provision for our harvest. We need purification for our hearts. We need provision for our harvest. So first, we need purification for our hearts. This is verses 11 through 14 in the passage. So God comes to the prophet Haggai and and for the people, and he says this. Look with me in verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. So he says, ask the priests about something about the thing that they would know the most about, about the law. And in order for us to understand what's about to unfold, we need to back up just a little bit. So think of the early books in the Old Testament, especially Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where the law is given and the the laws are named. And what's the reason for the law? Why does the law exist in the first place? Well, the law boils down to this. God saved his people out of the land of Egypt and began to dwell in the middle of them, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. But if God's going to do that, that raises a question. How do you live with the holy God, the creator of the universe, in your midst. How, how does that work out? Right? How do you love him? How do you honor him? And how do you not actually be killed by the weight of his perfection and righteousness when you're imperfect and unrighteous? Hence the law, and especially one of the pieces of the law, the purity laws, which are going to be referenced in this passage. And it's good to think about the purity laws like a ladder. At the top, there's holy, then there's clean, and there's unclean. Certain things could happen and move you down by being in contact with something that was unclean or impure, certain activities, right? But certain things could move you up the ladder, things like just the passage of time or or, or washing with water. But to get to holy, it always required a sacrifice. And the way way it worked is the the place you were on the ladder, excuse me, the place you were on the ladder dictated how close you could be to the very presence of God. If you were holy, then you were in a place where you could come closer to God. But if you were clean... You had to be a little farther out. And if you were unclean, you had to be farther away. And this was for your own safety. So Haggai is questioning the priests about the law, and he asked them two questions. So first question is there in verse 12. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. And the priests are right about this. They know the law well. So if the priest is carrying holy meat in the fold of his garment, which means we all know what this is like when we have a a large T-shirt and we hold something in it and we walk around, right? So the priests in their big folds of their robes would carry around holy meat. And he's asking, if then your robe touches something else, does that thing become holy? Can you pass holiness that way? And they say no, which is the correct answer. But in contrast, look at the question in verse 13. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, 
Does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Okay, so the principle here, unclean touch makes things unclean. Right? It's easier to spread impurity than it is to spread purity. It's easier to spread disease than it is to spread health. We understand that, right? People can spread disease by being in the same space, but you can't really spread your health to someone else, unfortunately. So we understand that principle. Ecclesiastes puts it this way. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. A little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Think about that, that ladder we talked about. It's easier to go down the ladder than it is to go up. Or think about it this way. If you have a clean shirt, one little food stain is going to ruin the shirt. I speak from a lot of experience on that one, unfortunately. But what do these two questions actually have to do with the people on December 18th, 520? And what do they have to do with us today? Well, look at verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people, and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. He's saying the people, he's saying you are unclean, telling it to the people. All they do is unclean. Even the very offerings they give are unclean. That is a huge problem. So why are the people unclean? What action did they do or what dead thing did they touch? How how did it happen, right? Well, for one, there's actually a dead body in the midst of them, which is the ruins of the temple. If the temple is the very presence of God, the fact that it's in ruins is defiling them. But even deeper, why did they need the temple in the first place? Why did they need to contain the presence of God for their own safety? Because you see, they have dead hearts. And so everything they do is unclean. They didn't just need to look around for some problem out there, some surface level thing, but actually Haggai's saying, hey, you need to examine yourself. But this is hard because we all do it. We all tend to look outward for our problems and almost never look inward. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean. Between 1993 and 2009, there were 40 crimes in Germany and a couple surrounding countries, including six murders, and they were doing DNA on all these crimes, and they found the same woman's DNA at every crime scene, amongst the other DNA they found, piece of DNA they found. And so they were wondering, who is this mystery woman? She was known as the Phantom of Heilbronn because of a particularly bad crime in Heilbronn, Germany. And so they kept looking around. They kept trying to figure it out. They went to psychics at one point because they couldn't figure it out. Well, what was happening is there was a woman in the cotton swab factory that was making the cotton swabs for their DNA tests, and it was contaminating the test. But here's the thing. They spent so many years and so many thousands of dollars looking outward, never saying, hey, maybe there's contamination in our process. Maybe there's contamination in what we're doing. It's just like the people of Haggai, right? Just like the priests of that time, the police at Heilbronn, the same thing. We must look at ourselves, not just outward. Same thing with me and the stained shirts. It's not about the food I'm eating. It's not about the type of shirt. What's the common denominator? It's me. Our hearts are the problem. Isaiah 64 puts it this way. Our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, are like filthy rags. We need purification for our hearts. So what does it mean for us that we need purification for our hearts? Well, like the priests and the people back then, contact with some semi-holy things isn't going to make us holy. Just our presence at church, just our partaking of the sacraments, which are important, but just those things can't save us. They can't cleanse us. We have deeper problems than our external actions can fix. Because think about it, our hearts taint all of our actions. We seek good things, but we seek them from bad motives. 
We work out of pride, out of selfishness, out of envy. We work for ourselves instead of doing it to serve others. We seek relationships, but we seek them out of what we can gain for ourselves, our own status, our own needs for fulfillment. And so we exploit one another instead of honoring one another. And when we do so, we often then, when we see problems, only look for the surface sins. Well, I just need to stop lying. I just need to stop drinking so much. I just need to stop looking at this. I just need to stop filling the blank with an external behavior. And yet these are symptoms of deeper heart problems that we have. And so Haggai's asking the question then and asking us today, what's the state of your heart really? And the fact is we need purification for our hearts. And if that wasn't enough, we also see that we need provision for our harvest, verses 15 through 19. So Haggai goes on, but again, we need just a little bit of backstory to understand the context fully. Back to the law of God, God's covenant came with blessings for obedience, but it also came with curses for disobedience. We'll get passages like Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 28. And so have that in mind as we hear this next section. So this next section is, is set off by two different uses of the word consider. And the word consider here doesn't really translate well into English, but literally it's this. Place your hearts to this. Put your hearts on this. And so the first consider, look with me at verse 15. Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. So what he's saying is, place your hearts back to the time before you placed any stones on the temple. Think about that time. Think about what it was like. And he asked the question. The question comes in verse 16. How did you fare? And then the answer immediately, when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. How did it go? Clearly, it did not go well. When they went to the grain expecting a certain amount, they had half of that. When they went to the wine expecting a certain amount, they had 40% of that. Maybe for us today, we go to the store and see something that's twice as expensive as it was before. So why? Why did that happen with their harvest? Well, look at verse 17. It gives the answer. I struck you and all the products of your toil with light and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. That language there is the language of covenant curses that appears earlier in the Bible. But why are the curses there in the covenant in the first place? Well, look at the end of verse 17. Let me read that again. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. There's this parallel in verses 16 and 17. The people came to the heap of grain. The people came to the vat of wine, but they did not come to the Lord. You see, the covenant curses were there as discipline. God is saying, I want you to come back to me. I want to point you back to me because he loves his people. Amos chapter 4 lists these covenant curses along with many others in what's happening to the people and yet has this refrain, I did this, I did this, I did this, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. And that was all pre-exile, but now Haggai is saying the same thing is going on here. You need to return to the Lord. And then we have the second section to consider. Look at verse 18. It's kind of an odd wording. It says, Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. So the wording is such that it's trying to say this. It's trying to say, place your hearts on the time since you've begun the rebuilding effort, since you've been doing my work. 
And we half expect him to say, look around you at all the blessing. Look around at your double harvest, right? And yet, what actually happens? Look at verse 19. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. The first the question, is the seed yet in the barn? To which the answer is no. They've just done their planting, and now they're waiting. They're waiting for the next harvest. And they have little left to eat because of the bad harvest beforehand. They're in a state of need. And then it says the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive, they've yielded nothing. Those are their four essential crops, and they've yielded nothing. What's the principle here? And both these consider sections. The, the principle is this. We always need God's provision for the harvest. Sometimes it's easy to say, well, once I've started doing God's will, then I'll get everything that I need. And that's not the way that it works. To give you an illustration of this kind of blessing in action, turn to one of my favorite books. It's called The Once and Future King. It's a retelling of the story of King Arthur. And in the story, there's a knight named Lancelot. And if you know anything about Lancelot, he's considered the best knight in the world. He never loses when he's jousting anyone. Well, he begins to go on a quest for the Holy Grail and begins to consider the things of God, and he starts losing. He loses a joust to his own son, who's definitely not better than him, and he causes him to wonder. And he understands, oh, I need to confess my sin. So he confesses one of his sins. And then he goes out and loses again, and he says, well, what's going on? I need to confess another sin. And he confesses the deeper-rooted sin of pride. And then a knight in black armor shows up, and he fights one more time, and he loses again. And so he's telling his friends the story, and they say to him, like, what happened? You've confessed. You should be fine. You, you should be back to where you were. And I love his response. He says this. God was not punishing me by letting the black knight knock me down. He was only withholding the special gift of victory, which it had always been within his power to bestow. What's he saying? He's saying this. He's saying, through the sufferings, he begins to understand that it was always God's prerogative to bless him. It was always God's blessing that he was dependent on. He never should have expected it in the first place. Through his life, he comes to understand that any victory he's been given is always from God as a gift. He always needs provision. We always need provision. So what does it mean for us today that we need provision for the harvest? Now, we're not farmers like there were in Haggai, right? But we all know what it's like to work and then have the results not be what's expected. Not be anywhere near what we think. We have little or nothing to show for all of our efforts. And what's our response when that happens? What is the response when the things yield less than expected? Where do we go? It might be that it yields less money than we expect. Maybe it yields less relationships, less good things. Maybe it's actually less food on our table. Where do we go? Where do we point to? Where do we look? Well, who do we blame? Including often we blame ourselves. And yet where in our lack is God saying to us, don't go to those things Go to me. Don't go to this. Don't go to that. Come to me. What is your response when God withholds something in your life? So often my response, and I think many of our responses, is turn to the things that we can double down on that we think we actually can control. Not that we can control things. We just have a better illusion of control in those things. And so we double down and say, I'll make sure I can do this. I'll make sure this is okay. Where, do you, where in your life do you run to get that illusion of control? What's the thing that we really think is going to help us through those difficult times? And where instead is God saying, turn to me? Don't turn to those things. And on the other hand, how much control do we think we really have in our success when things do go well? 
we often have this independent American spirit that I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and everything good that happens to me, I did. And yet that's not the way it works. Instead, we're dependent. And walking and waiting in our deficiency and in darkness is so difficult. But the truth is, we need provision for our harvest. And praise be to God, there is hope in this passage. Young worshipers, look with me at the end of verse 19. But from this day on, I will bless you. You see, there's an amazing, ongoing promise of blessing given to the people of Haggai. But the question is this, how's God going to do it? What's it going to be like? And is it just for those people in 520 B.C., or is it really for us today? Is God just saying to them, well, I'll give you some food next season when the crops come in? Is it simply an external blessing one or two times? But remember this, their harvest problems weren't their only need. Remember the need for purification. And remember, the defilement of their hearts actually led to the bad harvest. And so this promise of blessing is deep. It's both external, but it's also internal. You see, we need internal and external blessing. We're each one unified person, body and soul, external and internal. You and I don't just need encouragement to work harder or to do better. We don't need an easy training montage. We don't even need results. We don't need someone watching to make sure we're good. You and I and the people of Haggai don't need the cheap gifts of a Santa Claus this Christmas. But what we do need are the deep and abiding blessings of a Savior. And God, God himself has come in the person of Jesus. The eternal second person of the Trinity, God became man. This is the one in whom all the promises of God are yes. And so he's the fulfillment of this promise in Haggai. For he brings the comprehensive blessing that we need, the comprehensive promise of blessing that we need into our darkness. For he purifies our hearts. Look to his life and death. We heard in Matthew already, when he interacted with unclean people, he was not made unclean, but rather he made clean. Right? The priest could say, hey, if you touch a robe with something holy inside it, that won't become clean. And yet for Jesus, it did. Instead of touching a dead body and becoming defiled, he went down into death and brought this girl back to life. How? How could he do these things? Because he's God himself, but also because he's the perfect sacrifice to make us holy, to bring us close to God. He was the unjust sufferer for our sin. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, his word says. And by his spirit, the dead hearts that we have, the dead hearts of stone are removed from our flesh and we're given hearts of flesh. And he also provides for our future harvest. Look to his resurrection. Look to his ascension. It's hard now. It's dark now. But we have this promise of hope. And we have a great high priest in the heavens. You see, death has been defeated by his resurrection. And he is raised from the dead, which is called the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. What a great hope that is. That you and I will be raised to life, both body and soul, to live on in God's eternal presence forever. And as Revelation 22 says, the tree of life will bloom again with 12 different kinds of fruit, bearing fruit every month, and its leaves will be for the healing of the nations. What a beautiful blessing of harvest. To make sense of our suffering now, we must look to the coming and the suffering and the glory of our Savior, Jesus. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
With this harvest theme, I'm reminded of a story that I've, I've heard a few times, which is this. There's a farmer who's not a Christian, doesn't live a Christian lifestyle, right? And he writes a letter to a newspaper. This is back when, if you wanted people to read something, you'd put it in the newspaper. And he writes a letter and he says, Dear Sir, I've been trying an experiment. I have a field of corn which I plowed on Sunday. I planted it on Sunday. I cultivated it on Sunday. I cut it and hauled it to the barn on Sunday. And I find that I have more corn to the acre than has been gathered by any of my neighbors this October. And so he sends this into the paper, and he's ready to smugly read it the next day. And the editor publishes it, but he adds one sentence comment at the end. And his sentence is this. God does not make full settlement in October. That's the thing. You and I, even if we don't deserve it, we want God's full settlement, and we want it now. We want it when we want it and when we think we need it. And yet God still graciously does promise us his blessing. And so we can continue to put our hearts to God's work as the people of Haggai did in their rebuilding of the temple. We can still continue to put our hearts to God's work even when it's difficult because God has put his blessing on us. And this blessing has not only purified our hearts, but also provides for our future harvest. You see, we have a certain future. We have a harvest hope of resurrection. In Jesus, we can say with the people of Haggai and with the author of Psalm 126, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Jesus Christ is our only hope of blessing. Always. And especially this Advent season. In the name of the Father, and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you remind our hearts of Christ? Would you renew our hearts by your Spirit so that we might be faithful in the work that you've put us to? Lord, would you anchor our hearts in resurrection hope? Would you provide for us in the midst of difficult times? Would you give us hope in the midst of sufferings? We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our great high priest, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen.